This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. And many of us could be skeptical saying, is this going to really happen? I'll use the term big. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today, we have another installment in our series of service line conversations. Today, I have our cardiovascular experts, Chad Geese and Josh Aker from SG2 and Doug Beinborn from Vizient, to talk about a series of new technologies, the buzz they've got in the media, which things we should be paying attention to, and which things maybe is the hype not quite match what the operational and growth opportunity impact is going to be. I'll hand it to Chad first. I know one of the big areas they want to focus on is ablations and EP. So tell us what's going on there. Why is new tech impacting ablations? Thanks, Trevor. This is an area we hear a lot about when we're talking with our SG2 members, specifically around electrophysiology. And that's the new modality for delivering cardiac ablations. You'll hear this term described or this modality described in multiple ways, pulse field ablation, high energy electroporation, irreversible electroporation. They all mean the same thing. They're using a different energy source other than RF, radio frequency, or cryo to create a lesion in the heart. And why is this one taking the limelight right now? And really every program we talk to just can't wait to get their hands on this. It's because that electroporation has some tissue selectivity to it, meaning you're less likely to have phrenic nerve damage or esophageal damage while performing an ablation procedure. Doug, you've seen this happen in real life, and those are not fun complications to have during a procedure. There are some real safety benefits associated with this third modality that's soon to hit the market in the next year or year and a half that really has gotten people excited. One of the major benefits is the procedure time to deliver the lesions inside the heart from running your EP lab, from sourcing the generator and the catheters, from working with the device manufacturers. Chad, you make really good points there. EP programs are looking at reducing risk, improving outcomes, and how do they reduce procedure time. And I guess another one to throw in there is how to reduce radiation exposure or get rid of it completely. Those are big things that the labs are looking at. The other changes that we're seeing in the market is that AFib ablations are becoming first-line therapy. What used to be that people would have to fail one or two antiarrhythmic drugs before they would go on to ablation therapy, and now physicians are considering that first-line therapy instead of going through the different trials of antiarrhythmic drugs. And then when you look at the total ablation population of about 300,000 a year, probably half or more are AFib ablations. It's how do you get those patients through your lab and be able to do an appropriate number per day and decrease that procedure time because, as we all know, the longer the procedure is, the better chance there is for a complication. All those are big drivers and looking at different ways to deliver energy without damaging the esophagus or the left atrial tissue or the pulmonary veins is really of interest for physicians and providers. And this is a huge market and it's only getting bigger. Josh, you track this closely. Yeah, we've been really bullish on electrophysiology procedures for several years at SG2. We're forecasting about 10% growth for inpatient intracardiac catheter ablations over the next decade. 
But where the growth is really happening is that outpatient space where we're forecasting a nearly 45% growth over 10 years. We combine those inpatient and outpatient forecasts together. So you're going to see mid 40% growth for that intracardiac catheter ablations. Most of that is in the hospital outpatient department. And that really goes to what Doug was talking about, really thinking about that same day or next day surgery, really understanding the efficiency because the area that's growing are these outpatient procedures in that space. Really understanding your efficiency is going to be important while also delivering high quality and clinical value. During COVID and even looking at the big picture, hospitals are now looking at these procedures and saying, can we dismiss these patients the same day, which two years ago was really kind of unheard of. We're seeing a fair number of these AFib ablations being dismissed the same day, which has really been a change in this patient population. I know another area that you guys wanted to touch on is renal denervation. Are there similar dynamics? Is it a totally different space? Why is that another technology that's going to make a big impact? Renal denervation is ablating the renal nerves that innervate the renal artery in an attempt to regulate blood pressure systemically. This has been around for over a hundred years as far as our knowledge of the impact of the renal nerves on blood pressure management. We're just now, over the last 10 years or so, developing an interventional approach to use that to our advantage to manage patients with hypertension. And the current indication the device manufacturers are going after are those difficult to manage hypertension patients who may have failed or are on more than three or four hypertensive medications. This is a totally different space, totally different story. And let's just go back uh, about seven years. I was a new SG tour at the time. I came from Medtronic. And so I knew what was going on in this space. I show up to work one morning and I just see this flood of news come through about renal denervation and the simplicity trials and how the outcomes weren't as good as we expected. And the whole market imploded overnight. It was unbelievable to watch in real time. Companies were shutting down their renal denervation programs, writing them off as losses. And this happened in such a short period of time, coming from cardiac research, neuromodulation research. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. So to see renal denervation come back is a testament to the persistence of the research and drilling into exactly what were the factors that confounded the data in the original studies. What are your thoughts, Doug? Seven, eight years ago, I was in clinical practice and we were gearing up for this huge barrage of this hypertension patient population. Other than medications, this is the first time we've been able to be able to do something interventionally to improve blood pressure. As a cardiology practice, we're gearing up for this procedure. Who's going to work these patients up? Who's going to do the procedure? How long is it going to take? How do we recover them? And then how do we follow them long term to make sure this treatment is viable and it's doing the effects we want it to? And then we came in to work at all of our different locations, hospitals, industry, and it was shut down. The vendors in this space decided we need to get out of this. It didn't hit the clinical endpoints that we were expecting, and it went away. So everybody was left scratching their heads saying, what happened here? How did it get this far? It's just on the brink of becoming normal clinical practice. And here we are eight years later looking at this again, and many of us could be skeptical saying, is this going to really happen? 
the European studies so far have been hitting all the endpoints for safety and for being able to control blood pressure. The scary thing in the U.S. is one in three adults has hypertension, and that equates to almost 70 million Americans. It's a huge patient population, something that we haven't seen before. So when we talk about atrial fibrillation and ablation, that's about six and a half million patients. This one's nearly 70 million. So the numbers are astronomical. In the next year, we could see this in regular clinical practice again. The one discussion point around this is hypertension um, patients are taken care of by more than just cardiologists. Probably only 10 to 15% of these patients are regular cardiology users. It's family medicine, internal medicine, and PPAs. It's going to be a whole different patient population. So how do we get those people to the right provider at the right time to decide, is this the right technology? It really takes multidisciplinary care to the next level. We thought we had it with structural heart failure. But this one reaches way broader to that primary care provider base as well. Josh, you've got some info and insight here. Yeah, we looked at some of our claims-based data here at SG2 and tried to really figure out what type of physician was seeing hypertension patients. And as Doug had pointed out, around 86% of those physicians are in that primary care area. It's not only who is actually doing the procedure, and I think there's a couple of different specialties we can talk about, not only our cardiology fellows, but interventional cardiology. Maybe there are some interventional nephrologists that are going to be interested. It's also where these patients coming from. And so how are we going to educate our primary care practitioners? When do we really decide a patient is someone who has hypertension, but maybe just needs to have better education, better interaction to make sure they're taking their medication versus those patients that actually are going to need an invasive procedure. We really are trying to consider those patients that are resistant to hypertension medication, usually three or four before we would start thinking about this. That's really where some of those initial studies came from. But they're also doing those studies in the presence of patients being on those hypertensive drugs, that would really expand to that full 70 plus million that Doug was talking about. Those are logistical hurdles that we need to really focus on. So Doug, knowing the complexity of just what Josh is describing here, where do we start in evaluating this type of program in what could be an FDA approved product coming down the pike in about a year? One of our other things that are going to be around artificial intelligence. It's like, you know, how do you use your EMR to identify patients that are on triple medications and have a consistent systolic blood pressure above 160? That would probably be an ideal way to be able to look at that in that population and be able to screen. And then it would be independent of who's taking care of them. But for the most part, we're not quite there with the renal denervation. But the other thing is, in the past, it's how do you educate the internal medicine, family medicine, others that are caring for these patients to get them over? That's not an easy thing to do. You have to go to their grand rounds and speak about it. And then you have to have a hypertension coordinator that they can easily refer these patients in. But it's going to take a long time to ramp this up because it's not a pure cardiology thing. It's the whole healthcare system that takes care of this population. The planning process should be in place. And then what are some of your goals of your practice? Are you going to say patients need to be on triple medications and maximize them medications before you bring them over? Hospitals need to be looking at this. And then what's the reimbursement model look like? Is it going to be a temporary code or are there going to be real codes for this? So there's a many logistics that have to be worked through here. And it'd be best for hospitals to be thinking about this six to 12 months in advance when the approval process comes forward. Doug, you mentioned this could be an application for 
some deeper data work, potentially AI and CV. I know you've worked on some stuff across Visi and how AI can make an impact here. Talk about that more. It's very exciting. Artificial intelligence and the use in the application in healthcare is really getting headlines. One item that we're working on right now is using artificial intelligence to identify patients at risk for sudden cardiac arrest. When people have a weakened heart muscle and their ejection fraction gets below 35%, those patients are at a higher risk for sudden cardiac arrest, meaning that they go into a life-threatening fast arrhythmia that without defibrillation, many of these people will perish. There's about 356,000 people that have an episode of sudden cardiac arrest each year, and 95% of this population dies. For the last 15 plus years, there was two landmark studies called MADIT-2 and SCUDF that showed if you put an implantable cardioverter defibrillator in patients, it would save many lives and it increases length of life in patients. Only about 30% of those patients ever make it to an electrophysiologist who puts in the ICD and has that critical conversation with the patient about what the best treatment for their situation is. With the artificial intelligence, you're able to identify people through the medical records, not only test results, but if a physician dictates and says they have heart failure or if they have a wide QRS or if they have shortness of breath, these are all key indicators that they're having heart disorders from a weakened heart muscle. Being able to use artificial intelligence and find these underserved populations is really important. And then the other big thing was from a visiting standpoint, being able to work with our members for health equity. Everybody gets treated the same. It's like if you have the same clinical conditions, if you're male or female, skin color, it's all the same. It's based on best clinical practices. When I was working in clinical practice 11 years ago, we put something like this in place and it was crude compared to artificial intelligence now. And what we saw with that practice is we grew our ICD implants by over 30% annually because we were screening the right patients. And with that, you're saving lives. Not everybody is going to have an episode that they're going to go into this fast arrhythmia, but we know that a subset of this population is and we're able to give them extra years of life. That is exciting. Doug, thanks for outlining that and great connection to the subject above. I understand there's a handful of things here that maybe have gotten big attention in the media and you guys want to either say, yeah, the media's got it right. You got to pay attention or the impact might not be as big as we think. First one, non-invasive coronary imaging. Uh, huge deal. You've got organizations, companies like HeartFlow, creating ways to understand culprit lesions, to better assess coronary blood flow, clearly looking at risk management. These are non-invasive ways to assess the need for further treatment, as well as invasive treatments. They will have an impact downstream significantly on cath lab volumes and patient management. And since Chad used huge, I'll use the term big. For example, we've started to see HeartFlow really partner with all of the big players in imaging, really trying to make sure that they have the patient population under wraps, whether they're going to be in a large hospital, in an independent diagnostic and testing facility. We've heard clearly is partnering with Canon, and this is probably pretty interesting because Canon has optimized some of their cardiac imaging to be able to take a CNA in like a quarter of a second. So that's a heartbeat. That's pretty fascinating. And to be able then to combine that with Clearly, which uses AI to understand 
the types of plaques that they're seeing and whether those are vulnerable. That really helps cardiologists understand, should they be stinting? And if so, where should that be? This type of imaging is probably going to reduce some of that diagnostic catheterization that we're seeing, but maybe it's going to make sure that the stints that we're placing are more appropriate and are better geared towards their patient. What are you thinking, Doug? Working in cardiology for as long as I have, and if someone kept coming in with atypical chest pain, eventually you'd say, let's do a clear the air angiogram and find out if they have coronary disease or not, which was always nice. You had a definitive answer, but it's not without risk because you're giving them dye, which affects their kidneys. You're giving them radiation exposure and you can dissect the coronary artery. But the next time the patient comes in, you know what their anatomy looks like. When you look at all the angiograms done, only 40% of those lead to an intervention at the same time. So there's a lot of people having unnecessarily risk procedures here that we can do it non-invasively. And then we've come a long ways in this space. It used to be that we'd look at calcification in the coronaries. Now we have technology that can look at fatty plaques and other things. Before, you do a CT scan and see their calcium score, and it's like, is this telling us the whole picture? But now, I think the technology is getting to the point that we really have a good idea about the coronary anatomy, and we'll definitely have less coronary angiograms without intervention. All right. Tell me what's going on with TAVR. On the TAVR front, Medtronic just launched their third-generation transcatheter valve for aortic disease. A minor deal, I would say. Each of the major players here have a number of valves out there. It's an improvement, but it's not going to change this space. I would agree with Chad there. It's evolutionary versus revolutionary. I think when you look at the first generation of the Medtronic valve and you looked at heart block incidents, the second generation drops significantly and the third generation will as well. So that really isn't an issue. And the good thing now is we're starting to get long-term data. So we have five, six-year data now on outcomes, and it looks very good compared to surgical valves. This is an evolutionary area, but it's going to continue to grow with our aging population and going from high-risk patients only to all comers with aortic stenosis. And then mitral valve disease will be the next frontier. Yeah, this is the iPhone 13 incremental change. If you don't have one, get one. But if you're using the older version, keep doing that. Releasing a new valve does not mean that it's going to be cheaper for any of our organizations. And as Doug pointed out, there's a lot of new interesting research coming out around what patients benefit the most for TAVR. So having those conversations with your heart team of who is really the most appropriate person for this type of intervention, that can be a, one way to really control some of those costs that you're targeting the patients that would benefit the most with these really high cost devices. All right. How about Watchman? Another technology that's been around a bit. Josh, kick us off. In general, these types of devices are going to be impactful for a small population, but they are going to be impactful for those populations that need it, particularly as we think of different types of left atrial appendage occlusion. Watchman is probably the big brand name that people are paying attention to. But there are other devices out there, particularly for patients that have problems taking the type of anticoagulants that you would be needed to take, needed to have a Watchman device. In my mind, this is a small change. I would agree. Left atrial appendage space is relatively niche. It is growing because it's starting from a small base, as Josh had mentioned. It's great to have multiple occlusion devices out there, but it's not significantly going to change the space. 
the anticoagulation afterwards is a big thing. It's like, do they need it at all or is it short term? And I think we'll see more studies with both occlusion devices out there that the use of blood thinners is going to decrease afterwards. Some of these patients, even though you take their left atrial appendage out of the risk factors, it doesn't make it completely clear that they're at, not at risk for stroke and other thrombectomy problems. Last one, heart logic, new remote patient monitoring technology around heart failure. Doug, what do you think? I'm going to go a little bit deeper into this one. The remote monitoring through the devices is a really important thing. There's two parts of remote monitoring with devices. The first one is just the device operations. Is is the lead working correctly? What's the battery status? How much energy does it take to pace the heart? Have they had any episodes? And so pre-COVID, we were seeing about 70% of this population was being remotely followed every three months. And now I'm guessing that number is way up into the 90s because hospitals have decided it's like, you know what, we can do this safely. It's better for patients because this device is actually checked every day versus coming into the clinic every 90 to 180 days. So it's better outcomes for patients and it's better for patients not having to come into the clinic. The second part is using device diagnostics to help decrease the number of admissions for heart failure. Two devices I'll talk about. So Medtronic's got Optival, which looks at many different factors, but it looks at an impedance level across your chest wall. And the lower your impedance, the more fluid that's in your chest wall. Another company that has this is Boston Scientific and it's HeartLogic. And they use the same parameters as Medtronic and they're able to add a heart sound mechanism into this. And what both companies have shown is that typically you get 25 to 35 days of a warning that these patients are deteriorating before they come to the hospital. Obviously, you don't want to react upon these patients in one day, but if for a week they continue to deteriorate, can I adjust their medications at home to decrease their fluid status and things like that and keep the patients at home is where they want to be, but also decrease the number of hospitalizations for heart failure. And I think we have more hospitals are becoming more interested in using those device diagnostics than we have in the past. For all of the reasons that Doug has just laid laid out, I am all for this. I just hope and I wish that it will get the uptake that it deserves, that these patients need. We have a long way to go. And so we will keep just spreading this message as much as we can. There's a lot of potential here. EP was so important that it is one of the lead articles in the new tech watch coming out from Vizient that is available on the Vizient website. One other thing to add to this is as we talk through a number of these things, there's a codependence on healthcare workers to be able to work together across the whole spectrum of healthcare. We look at this about remote monitoring for heart failure, and it's a cardiology issue, but it's EP doctors are putting the devices in, but it's the heart failure doctors that are following for that problem long term. There's just not as easy a bridge between those groups. How do we grow that relationship that the right device is put in the right patient at the right time and that the heart failure doctors are able to care for these patients in the right way that the healthcare model becomes seamless? Doug, I can't think of something better to close on. Guys, that was a super fun episode. I learned a ton. Thanks so much for joining. Looking forward to having you again soon. This has been another episode of SG2 Perspectives. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review. We'd love to hear from you. Please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at SG2Healthcare. You can also reach us via email at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Reach out and let us know what healthcare trends are most important to you. 
Please also listen and subscribe to our colleague, Dr. Tom Villanueva's Modern Practice Podcast on Vizient's Medical Leadership Channel. Tom discusses key healthcare trends through the clinical leadership lens. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.